now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. Whether you're a scientist, investigator, first responder, lawyer, or just an avid forensic fan, we're talking about the topics that matter to you. The 2020 R&D season of Just Science will feature some of the research presented at the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Science Research and Development Symposium. The R&D Symposium, held in conjunction with the American Academy of Forensic Science 72nd Annual Scientific Meeting, showcased some of the exciting projects currently being funded by NIJ grants. In Episode 1 of the 2020 R&D season, just Science interviews Dr. Ling Wang, postdoctoral associate at Florida International University, about the detection and quantitation of fentanyl mixtures by surface-enhanced Raman spectroscopy and chemometrics. Opioid abuse has grown considerably in the last few years. New fentanyl analogs appear in street drugs at an alarming rate. Researchers like Dr. Wang are working to create alternative screening methods to detect the ever-evolving fentanyl compounds in today's seized drugs. Listen along as she discusses graduate programs, the nuances of analyzing fentanyl, and her work in the detection and quantitation of emerging drug compounds in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Megan Grabenauer. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Grabenauer, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today, our guest is Dr. Ling Wong. She is a postdoctoral associate in Dr. Bruce McCord's lab at Florida International University. Ling, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I wanted to start with just a little bit of your background. I know you're currently a postdoc at FIU, but where did you complete your undergraduate work? My undergraduate major is applied chemistry in Jiangsu Political Universities. Okay, but it was an applied chemistry? That's what you studied prior to grad school? Yeah, because the school would focus on the industry chemistry part. This is just like, okay, I feel, okay, chemistry is not only academic one, it's be something be real used in the future. Okay, I said, okay, applied chemistry would be better than pure chemistry. <laughs> so you're not so much into the basic science, then you, you prefer the applied aspects of it? Yeah, because you always just wonder, okay, you started a lot, but you finally want to know if they can be well used or not. So this is why applied chemistry sounds better than chemistry. <laughs> so where did you do your graduate work? I worked in the Florida AM universities. This is like a, I have the apply here. Okay, let me go to some university with a master's degree to see if I would be good for academic for higher levels or not. because. Before I apply for the graduate school, I work in the dye company. So that time it's like you do one year for the industry work. You just wonder, okay, is that my rest of life or I can do more stuff? But it's like it's not only the educations you can 
apply for the higher level of jobs. So, okay, let's choose the graduate school just to see how far and how much knowledge I need to know before I can go to the next step. So you spent some time in industry then mm -hmm. in between your undergraduate and graduate. Yes. I did the same actually. Because they said like uh, this is a research, but it's like uh, do you really like research or not? You never know. So you have to try both ways and just think like okay, that is the correct way for you or not. If it's yes, then what is the next step you want to achieve? It's always be there. You never know what is correct answers until you try the ARL. So for students out there that might be wondering that same thing and if a PhD is for them, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about your PhD graduate experience? What, what were the academic requirements and, and things you had to complete along the way to getting your PhD? So every PhD, especially in the science part, except the classes, you have to do the research. It's not like undergraduate research, like you always have a guider to help you. The most important for the PhD program is you can learn everything by yourself. You maybe ask her helps, but you have to learn how you find the extra resources, you to find the answer for your academic questions, and also for the research helps part. So if someone come from the undergraduate directly to graduate school, they were lost in the first one or two years because like they are not get used of why the lab members not help that much, why <laughs> no one tell them like what is the next step. So I feel like this is maybe good for like a master degrees then you just like someone guide you a little bit but you can also work independently and you feel like okay I can stay in the lab like six eight hours and you would still like that lifestyle it would be good to go ahead as PhD otherwise like it would be too stressful when it's just a jump from undergraduate directly to the PhD program. Because it's a very different style of education at that point, much less classroom and, and a lot more hands-on. Yeah, and also it's, I think it depends on the lab you work because Dr. McCoy is the free person, whatever you want him to just the support, he always think like, oh, that's interesting, you can do it. But that means like you can, you have to work independently. Some professors, they would get very detailed planned step by step. So you have to think about what's the type of your working style and select the correct professor. That's very important for the PhD program. I, I remember doing that when I was looking at different advisors for my PhD program. There were some that like required you had to be in the lab during certain hours every yeah. day and other ones like I don't care as long as you get the work done. You yes. Know? So this is why we said like make sure like you know understand yourself then just to talk with the professors to see the style you like or not and uh, good PI or the correct PI would be half of your program. <laughs> <laughs> so you're currently doing a postdoc. Mm -hmm which means you've completed your PhD and you're on your way to establishing an independent research career. Yes. Right? So what is it you hope to do after you complete your postdoc? Actually, I'm doing the DNA typing for my postdoc jobs. It's totally different to my PhD program. So it would be interesting is like, because finally, my dream work is always related to the drugs part. And from our lab, I know, okay, so from the epigenomics part, if the drug users, they would have special the biomarkers. So I would want to come from, okay, I can work from the sister drugs to toxicology, finally to the biomarkers for the drug users, everything related to the drugs. This is my dream 
but it's just a take steps to go there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so your research interests are really evolving then as you're, as you're moving along in the different stages. Yeah, because when we talk about the drug chemistry, it's always be the scissors, the drugs. When talk about toxicology, it would become the metabolites. They have a relationship. But you would be so surprised that like finally drug users even have the biomarker, the DNA sequences changes after they use the drugs. I didn't know this until like our group began to work with epigenomics with that era. So I would feel like, okay, it's still related to the drugs, so I want to work with that way. <laughs> so then speaking about, you know, working with the drugs and related to drugs, you've done quite a bit of work with fentanyl and fentanyl-related analogs. Mm -hmm. Those can be kind of scary drugs to work with for some folks. Did you take any special precautions when you were working in the lab with these substances? I think like, uh, we are the chemists, so we know how dangerous is the substance we are touch. So you just be very careful, just to check off all the MSDS, then know what is the protocols you need to get. So for us, we use the portable hood that would be only used for the fentanyl analog sample preparations part. Then I will have like a double of the gloves, face mask, and the eyeglasses, and that would be enough. Did you have any safety policies in place, like you weren't allowed to work on it alone or somebody else had to know when you were working yeah. with fentanyl? When you work with the fentanyls, it's allowed, it's required. Someone must also be in the lab just in cases. And you will have like the, also the first add boxes with naloxone next to it. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't use it. <laughs> nice. So for folks listening that aren't chemists or just heard a lot of the media hype but don't fully understand, what is it about working with fentanyl that requires these extra precautions and scrutiny? Okay. Would you mind just I mentioning like the story we heard last year in Baltimore, the conferences time? They said that the local police, someone just opened some whitened powder package and sent it to emergency immediately. Yeah, this is like her, they said like, oh, fentanyl is that kind of dangerous because especially if this is a pure fentanyl and if you have little of them in spread into the nose, like part, it already called it dangerous because fentanyl is like 100 times more potent than morphine, 10 times more than heroin. But some of the coffee fentanyls, it would be like 10,000 more potent than fentanyl. So it's just like you need maybe like a salt, that kind of size, it already costs you go to the emergency room. So this is like a, when we talk about the fentanyl works part, people just worry about how safety you can go. So when we select the samples, we try to avoid those most dangerous drugs part. We choose the fentanyl and the fentanyl analogs from 10 to 100 times potent in the same morphine. This is the part we begin work with. And also, because it would be the solid, would be most dangerous. And the liquid, you can control the concentration you do. So we just be very carefully to weight the solids and dissolve them in the water solution. And this is also, we try to say like the later, when we do the detections, we prefer to use the water samples, not the powder directly. Beyond fentanyl its analogs, a lot of the other drugs you work with are controlled substances. Mm -hmm. So what procedures does your lab have in place for the, the storage and inventory of controlled substances? 
Okay, because we are the, we have the DEA license part, so most of the controlled substance because we bought them as the solids, so they are locked in the safety banking in Dr. DiCaprio's offices. Every time if we need the solid, we need to knock the door, finish all the forms, and just take the bottle, wait the amounts we need, and the rest of the main bottles go back, and dissolve everything in the liquid, and keep in the freezer for the future use. Okay, so the, the bulk powders of the drugs are kept locked in a, in a closet yeah. or in a cupboard in someone's office, yeah. but then you can take some out once you make working solutions and have them yeah, dilute can, solutions in the lab yeah, to you work can, with? This is like in the lab work, you always have the standard solutions, the concentration usually one milligram per milliliter, and for the dilution services part, because they also want to keep us from the powders. <laughs> so we're here this week at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences annual meeting, and you gave a presentation called The Detection and Quantitation of Fentanyl Mixtures mm -hmm. by Surface Enhanced Raman Spectroscopy and Chemometrics. Uh, that presentation was part of the NIJ Forensic Science R&D Symposium. If listeners are interested in watching the archived reporting of that presentation, it can be found on ForensicCOE.org or the landing page for this episode. And before we get into the details of your project, are there any other co-workers on this project that you'd like to acknowledge? Yes, I have a list here. So first, I would thank to Kiara Diore. She is my lab member, and she is very interested in the nanomaterials. So the NanoStar we use is she like her founder from the articles and the modified the capping agents to make them stable. So she spent a lot of time working with those nanomaterials. We are more like the application for those nanomaterials directly. Okay. And uh, for the Mario Vandodons and the Sevede Dogro, they work with me in the summer times just to help me to run some experiences and especially when we work on the reproducibilities. We just need extra operators like from them. We can compare the how is the operation affect the final results. And uh, Dr. Mabel, we work with the DFT calculation. It's like the quantum physical chemistry. So it's another life. And the Dr. <laughs> Harrington's, we have the problems when we do the data analysis for the mixture part. So he gave us the support for the chemometrics way. And then we realized, okay, finally, for the source, it would need either the pre-separation technicals or the chemometrics. Otherwise, we cannot solve the problems for the mixtures. And my boss, Dr. McCord, he allowed me to do anything I want to do. So thankfully, <laughs> he gave me enough free time just to do everything. Always a, a perk. Can you give us a, a high-level overview of the purpose and the goals of this project? We talk about the fentanyl in mixtures because the drug users, they have no idea what is inside. I heard someone said that like they would buy those chromatic reagents to test if like when they have the straight drugs, they would be pure or not. And uh, however, this is not that kind of sensitive to the fentanyl because it's very trace amounts there. So we will try to help to detect even the very low percentage, let's say even lower than one percentage of fentanyl in the mixtures, you still can see it. So it would be safer for the police's offices if they have coupled with the suspected white powder, or even for the drug users, if, if they want to buy those handheld aromas, they can know what exactly inside. Got it, yeah. So where are you in the project? It's like, when did it start and when do you expect it to end? Or has it ended already? 
This is a part-time job because the grant officially itself is for the detection for the synthetic cannabinoids. When we work with the chemometrics part for the synthetic cannabinoids part and with different nanomaterials, we think like, okay, let's try with some more opioid stuff, it works. So currently we finished the detection methods and we only need the validation with the real samples part. Because we build the two models to detect the mixtures and we need a validator, the percentage errors and also if we meet the real samples and it's maybe more completed with more components if it still works good or not. Surface Enhanced Raman, which is mm -hmm. often abbreviated as SERS, S-E-R-S, that's a specialized type of Raman spectroscopy. Can you talk a little about exactly what SERS is and how it differs from traditional Raman? SERS is the enhanced mentor for the Raman spectrum. So usually for the traditional Ramans, it works really good with the solids. But when they work with liquid, because they diluted too much, and the, the Raman skeleton would be too weak, and it not get the signals. So when you add the nanomaterials, it would create the interactions between the two nanoparticles, we call it hot spots. So when the analytes can come into the hot spots part, and this will be the electromagnetic fields. And when you have the Raman skeleton part, it will enhance a lot. Actually, some of the SARS technicals, if you have good enough hot spots, you can even detect the single molecule. This is important for us because when we want to do the trace detections part, the percentage or the concentration themselves are too low. So if you can go to the sub-nanograms of the samples part, that would be enough for the scissors the drugs. So the method that you're using and you talked about in your presentation uses something called gold nanostars mm -hmm. as the SIRS substrate. What exactly is a nanostar? This is like uh, you use the third list method. You put the gold solution and the silver solutions as the mixtures, voltrix them for 10 seconds add LAA to make them grow a little bit, and uh, like a star shapes, and then you add the keeping agents to make them stable. So when we prepare them, like we you cost like uh, one minute to prepare one milliliter of it. So it's very simple and easy, and you only need the four chemicals and the waters, then you can get those beautiful nano stars. And they're thankful Kiara, so she make them stable at least more than two months. So yeah. once you make them, you can store them in the room months. temperature and the dark places, they will be stable at least two months. Even after two months, it still gave the signals, but it's maybe intensity was a little decreases, but itself, the, this modified nanostars works really well. So what happens after two months? How do they degrade? When they aggregate too much, then they don't have enough hot spots to give the signals. So it's like when we said we put the stabilizing reagents, we just want to those nanomaterials not aggregate together until we really use it. But with the time flowing, those nanoparticles will just aggregate together so you don't have those like free zones to do the analytes anymore. So they start to clump up and then you don't have as much surface area yeah, available. Yeah, to do the reactions. All right. What are the advantages of these nanostars over the currently used So substrates? usually, currently, a lot of them use the nanosurfaces. And the nanostars, like the name said, it's stars. So you would have multiple tips. So 
Usually you need to get extra aggregation, make the nanoparticles close to each other and have the interaction phases. But the nanostar itself, because they have the tips there, so they already have those hot spots. When you add the aggregation reagents, it can produce multiple hot spots places. It has higher chance to entrapped those analytes. So more analytes you can get, the stronger signals you can get. So is it it's that unique geometry of them then that it's what's giving them those special characteristics? Yes. What kind of sample prep is required to analyze a drug using the SIRS approach? For this one, you only need to make sure the samples can be dissolved. So you can, because we have 90% of the water basis, so even your samples only dissolved in methanol or ethanol, or the waters, they can be used directly. So any drugs, they can be dissolved. They can be used for the liquid size part. So it has to be a liquid. You can't use this method on solids directly. This is our next step for the research, <laughs> is how to use the solids directly. Because I didn't have this idea until I talked with someone this time in AAFS, because usually they would recommend they don't want to touch those powder samples. They don't want to do the solid sample directly. So we were just think like, okay, is liquid sample would be easier for people to use and would be safer because concentration is much lower. But now they said like, oh, we still, someone still prefer to do the solid sample. So we have to say, okay, we have to prepare everything as the polymer or the surfaces with those nanomaterials. And when you add the powder directly, and you can test them. This is the next step we want to try. I know one of the big advantages of using ramen for drug screening is that you can actually analyze drugs through the packaging, so you never have to open the container. I know with the SERS approach, you have to get the substrate in there, right? So does that yeah. negate that advantage? Can you still collect the spectrum through packaging? The problem is like, okay, you can just throw them with the bags. The bag itself would give you like some of the background. And also one important thing, because we work with the scissors, the drugs, how can you, and when the cheese fentanyl is very little, maybe like one or five percentage from the kilograms of bags, how can you know like you use the hand heard Roman is the correct spots you get the things inside. So this is why we still prefer to use the liquid sample because we have more chance to dissolve everything in the solution. It's not like the solids, you try with the maybe 10 spots there, but you avoid the rest part and you don't know what exactly in the rest of the packages. Once you've dissolved it and you've made your liquid sample, it becomes more homogenous then? Yes. Okay. Is there any concern though about if you have to open the packaging to mm -hmm. dissolve the sample, that you're increasing your exposure risk? Yeah, this would be little things we have to worry about. This is why just we would recommend if you have to do all of this tester, please wear the face maskers, safety goggles, and the gloves. It should be okay. Because I try to waste the bottles of the fentanyl and I'm still be here, so I think if you have enough safety equipment, that would be okay. And also because, except that would be the real big packages part, if it's like scissors, the drugs from suspector or the cars part, they will not be that huge amount, so it should be safe to touch them. Is the technique destructive? I mean, once you have major dilution with the nanostars, can that same solution go on for further analysis? It's possible. 
and it depends on which kind of the experiments you want to go ahead. So what kind of mixtures have you tested your method with? Since we are the academic way, so we try just like the pure fentanyl, fentanyl mixed with heroin and the fentanyl mixed with cocaine. And this is the two main components we know is sold in the street drugs. Okay, so those are the only combinations you've tried so yeah, far? Yeah, because we asked the cream labs, it has the much higher chances is the pure heroin mixed with the little of the fentanyl. This just like for the street drugs, they want to lower the costs for the manufacturers. And have you tried mixtures using any fentanyl analogs? We didn't try this one. We just started the fentanyl analogs with the benchtop ramen. So this one, we find you can distinguish them from the moderate and the weak bands. But we didn't try with the portable one because portable one says the signals is already much lower than the benchtop one. And we're also wondering how is the mixture working. So we come from the fentanyl only itself. And also fentanyl analogs changes so faster. And if we just focus too much for different fentanyl analogs in the mixtures, you may be lost the information. And we just want to make sure if fentanyl is the selected special bands or as the worst spectrum, the method itself can work. So everything can be automatically calculated by the software. So you don't need to worry about which type of analogs be there because the, they use the word spectrum, it's not the single one. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that, about how, how the instrument makes that identification. Are you using a library matching approach? We used the Salmon, the Foster Hand Raman instruments. So they have the library for like heroin and the cocaine, those traditional drugs. But for the new fentanyls, they don't have those library you can use. So for us, it's like we compared with the solid Raman spectrum with the simulated spectrum, finally to the third spectrum, and to select how many bands are still available in the portable system. Then we would say, okay, if we want to use with the portable systems, these bands can confirm this is this single fentanyl. It's like you need the extra experiments from the calculated and other experiments to confirm it works for the portable system. So you need to have a reference sample of the particular drug that you're hoping to identify in order to, to build up that yeah. library of reference spectra? This is one part, and the other part is like we are working with chemometrics way, so we would know with the selected bands, they were related to the special functional groups and their structures. And if finally we can find these models, even when we meet with the unknown fentanyls, it can automatically just assume what is the chemical structure be there. But it's just that it's, it's related to like machine learning, those things, but it's a lot of work to do in the future. <laughs> yeah, so as you mentioned, the illicit drug market is constantly evolving and as new fentanyl analogs come out, other ones mm -hmm. fall out of favor. How much work is it? How simple or hard would it be if you did develop this method and be able to positively identify an analog, say a new one comes out next week, to be able to add that into the algorithm for identification? First, we have to build the fentanyl analogs library with source and the Raman results part. And then we have to classify the functional groups related to the bands and then build the models. And I hope like if I have chance and we may 
try to finish maybe in last, next one or two years, if we can. Can you talk a little bit more about the sensitivity of the approach? I, what's the lower concentration, lower limit of the concentration you can see? So, when we use this nano stars, we just want to try. We were so surprised like when we test her and the calculated limited detection is 0.25 nanogram per milliliter. So it is already been the low concentrations available for the sister drug. So is that impacted at all if it's 0.25 nanogram per mil as a pure solution? Or as the pure solution. What if there's other drug in, in that solution as well? Can it still get down to that low level? This is what we calculated from the PCA results and the PLSDA results. It would be 0.05 percentage fentanyl in heroin and 0.01 percentage of fentanyl in cocaine sample. Okay, so you just mentioned the PCA results. Can mm -hmm. you explain that a little more for the listeners that aren't so familiar with chemometrics techniques? <laughs> so PCA is, the full name is Principal Component Analysis. This is a statistic method to minimize the uncorrelated variables. So it will give you the minimum variables. You can distinguish the group or the single spectrums you want. And uh, when we use the PCA, best part for the Roman spectrum is like you will never have to use single select band to describe your single samples. You can use the word spectrum. They will be visualized only as one plot. So when you run them, they can be discriminated from the analogs and other drugs part. So how do you envision this methodology being used? Is this something that would be used in the laboratory as a screening tool? You've mentioned being able to do it with a handheld ramen. Are you thinking that it might be like a field portable test that law enforcement it's, could use? This is always said that like, it depends on how far the instrument company want to go. Because everything calculated, you can either use the origin or the MATLAB. So when the model is be ready to use, and if the instrument can couple with the calculated software directly, then when the instrument opting the spectrum, it can be calculated by the machine itself. It's not necessary for the human just to input the data and do calculations. And it can be calculated by the software. But it depends on the company, how they want to install those statistic models into the instrument. So it could conceivably be performed by a non-scientist, like say a law enforcement yeah. officer. So I don't know if you use those portable Roman instruments because when they test with samples, they would just tell you this is heroin, this is cocaine, or this is a mixture. It's already available for the instruments tell you that would be the pew or the mixtures. So it's just a need extra libraries for the fentanyl analogs information and the models for the fentanyl mixtures. And I think it's really reasonable to them to detect those mixtures. And then the end user doesn't have to worry about trying to interpret the wavelengths and bands of the Raman spectrum. Yeah, That's all built into the software. Raman, when we talk about portable Raman, I heard so many people complain about like baseline correction normalization. This is like if you don't have good chemometric approaches, you have to buy your hand one by one plots to do the baseline corrections. And if you only maybe have 10 samples, it's okay. But if you have like hundreds of works you have to finish in one day, it's impossible. So 
it must have the chemometric sways help you to minimize the baseline corrections, normalizations, quickly do the running part. So what additional steps would be needed? Right now, this you're doing it in the lab. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you could conceive that it could be done by law enforcement uh, as a portable drug screening option. What's the missing link? What needs to happen in between there? So this is the requirements for the validation. And we also need the real samples. This is the most difficult step for us because most of crime labs, we try to connect this at a liker. They, it's not easy for them to offer like those controlled substances outside. So it's would be like how far we can go to apply to get the approved to test the real samples. That's big questions for me. So you, yeah, you need to see how it works on the real samples. This is my dream. Like I mentioned, I'm like the really want to do everything is like apply the chemistry. So I really want to see how is the school part change it to real life part. And then, but this gap is so difficult to go. So that sounds like something that's been difficult in the research realm. Are there any other hurdles that you've come across when trying to do this research besides access to genuine case samples? Yeah, it's understandable like uh, it would be like they want to keep people safe or just like because this is still cases in progresses, these things. But finally you would get approved is like it's the most difficult part. Did you learn anything surprising along the way? This is, I mentioned the liquor because our lab already used the nanomaterials for synthetic cannabinoids, like the JWH series, this part. So when I work with the fentanyl one, and I would be so surprised that this nanostars especially sensitive to fentanyl. Because I tried this nanostars with other opiates and the synthetic cannabinoids, even some of the casinos part, and the detection levels would be different. So it sometimes it's like you don't know like one of the substrate it be so special for one application. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our guest Dr. Ling Wong for sitting down with Just Science to discuss her NIJ funded grant. Thank you Ling. Thank you. I'd also like to thank you the listener for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. And for more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, visit ForensicsCOE.org. On that website, you'll find additional webinars, guidance documents, reports, and conference information. Also, you can follow the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or sign up for our newsletter to hear about release dates on upcoming resources. I'm Megan Grabenauer, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Heather Garvin, Associate Professor of Anatomy, about a new forensic tool for identifying the species of unknown skeletal remains. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.